Hi guys, today I was very lucky to be joined on the podcast by one of the best refs in world rugby, Ben O'Keefe. Ben is a regular ref at international and super rugby level, and he was even an assistant ref in the Rugby World Cup 2019 final. We go into lots of detail about how he succeeded so young at refereeing, what he does when he realises he's made a wrong decision and how he deals with that, how he prepares for a match, where he thinks rugby's headed, are there any new laws he thinks should be invented. We also go into lots of detail about how players can influence referees and what makes players good at the breakdown and jackling. I really hope you guys find this interesting as I did. Enjoy. Hi guys, today I'm very lucky to be joined by Ben O'Keefe. How's it going? Yeah, good, mate. Really good. How are you? Really good, thanks. Um, yeah, it's great to have you on. So just to start with, what's your sort of um, story like as a ref? How did you get into it and um, how have you succeeded so much at it? Yeah, it's, um, it's good to be on the um, on your podcast. It's, it's one of those things like uh, it was never something that I intended to do when I was younger, right? Like um, I grew up in New Zealand, so we all either played, you know, pretty much everyone played rugby. Um, my parents got me to play football or soccer. Um, until I was old enough to sort of um, take the tackles and I did that for a few years and then wanted to be an all-black you know every every kid um, who picks up a rugby ball wants to wants to wear that black jersey um, and I, I, I went to university so I was sort of about 19 um, down in uh, Dunedin and um, had, had my first year off at university um, and then I went to trial in my second year and I tried for one of the clubs here and I just I just lost a bit of I guess passion for the game. Like I was never a great player. Um I, I managed to stay in the backs, even though I was quite tall. Um so second by centre, they moved out to sort of the wing and fullback. Um so I never put my head into a ruck or a scrum, which was um which was ideal back then. Um but yeah, I just sort of lost a bit of passion for for playing the game. Um but well, I was quite lucky when I grew up, like my whole um I guess rugby career, you know, down the down the rugby park in Blenheim where I'm from was based around me playing rugby in the morning and then watching my dad referee in the afternoon. Um, so he was a rugby referee uh, where I grew up and did quite a few regional sort of provincial games. Um, but I, I sort of watched him um, just as, you know, dad running around on the rugby field. Um, never never looked at him as, as something that, you know, maybe I'll do that one day. But it was him that in, in my second year, I was sort of letting him know that, like, I wasn't really feeling like I wanted to play anymore. Um, but he said, look, give, give refereeing crap because, you know, this is, this is back in, I think, 2009, 10. Um, maybe uh, sorry, no, a little, you know, a little bit later, sort of. And you know, refereeing was you know becoming a bit of a career. There was a bit of a pathway there. That I guess um, you know we had professional referees in New Zealand um, quite a few decades ago, but it was actually a career pathway in terms of um, progressing. You know, going and doing you know Super Rugby then, then Test matches. Um, so, but for me back then, I was just I just wanted to be involved in rugby and and refereeing the weekend. So I did that um, down in Dunedin. I was, I was quite fortunate in terms of. You know, big big cities or centres in New Zealand. Um, it had really high quality rugby, but um, because it was quite a transient population, people would come for university for, for about three or four years and then leave. I mean that a lot of like established referees were either they probably moved on. Um, whereas if I refereed in other big centres like Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, um, I would have had to have gone through a real hot a long hierarchy of um, you know top level referees that were already in that region. So. I really got to cut my teeth in a um, in a place that gave me opportunities at the top club level really early, um, and you know it, it allowed me to sort of referee those games and get that experience that I needed, um, and and that was it really like I just I did that every weekend it was part of, you know something to get me out of my books um, and out of work during the week, um, and it sort of just progressed you know I started doing um, you know club finals and then regional games, um, then I made some national squads, and then a few years later you know Heartland Rugby. Um, did my first Mighty Ten Cup game and 
and then a few bit, a few games of Super Rugby, and um, I got offered a contract, and and then I started doing it full time. So it was sort of a bit of a roundabout way, but um, I guess you'd say it was always in the blood. Um, but certainly something that I found, you know, the love for because I just wanted to to, to stay involved in the game. What were you What were you studying out of interest? So I, I'm a doctor, so I did medicine um, down in Dunedin. Um, so it's a, a six year degree. Um, which is really good because you know I see a lot of um, you know I was sort of learning to be a doctor and a lot of um, um, you know things you need to do in medicine is about ex, you know describing and explaining information to to patients and families and also you know receiving feedback and your communication is really important. Um, so I was sort of going along these two pathways with my medicine and with with my refereeing, um, and you know there was like for like in in both sort of aspects around you know the communication and player management or, or you know patient management. Um, so it was quite cool because it meant that um, I guess both of them um, were quite advantageous for for the other when I was sort of doing it during the week and then I was able to be out on the rugby field in the weekend as well. Yeah, my biggest question is like, how did you have time for all that? And um, did it actually help having two sort of quite like demanding things at once? Yeah, it did. Like, you know, when I first started, it was really just a, you know, something I wanted to do in the weekend, just like most people would go to the gym or they go for a run or, you, know, you got to have some sort of outlet. So for me, rugby refereeing was my outlet on the Saturday for 80 minutes. I was able to, you know, get out of the classroom, get out of the hospital and put my boots on and run on a field. And so that had, you know, physical and mental benefits because, um, you know, you're going out, you're exercising, you're releasing all these endorphins. Um, and, you know, so that was really good early on in my career. And then, yeah, I did get busier. You know, I got to a point where I was working full-time in the hospital Monday to Friday. Um, Friday and I was flying out to do a game on the Saturday flying back on the Sunday and straight back in on the Monday. So, you know, while they got quite busy, it also, it really helped me because no matter how well or how poorly I went on the Saturday, Monday at eight o'clock, I had to start a clinic and I had to fully focus and I couldn't think about rugby. So I had to separate myself from, um, you know, from the game. And it meant that, okay, I'd have to do my, you know, reviews on the Sunday night. Um, some runs that I had to do were around, you know, 11 p.m. at night, you know, after work because I had to actually get my training in and it was the only time I could do that. So, it was busy. I had to balance it out, but it also complemented each other really well. It did, however, get to a point where, um, you know, I was able to manage it when I was just doing games in New Zealand, um, or maybe only doing one or two Super Rugby games a year because I was, I was able to get someone else to cover me if I needed to take Friday off. Um, but it got to a point where I was, I was doing well enough that they wanted to give me more games. They started sending me over to Australia. Um, and it got to a real point where I was sort of meeting at the top where um, I wasn't rushing clinics, but, you know, I needed to. Um, you know, clinics were going over time and I was missing flights to get to games and then my prep for my game wasn't that well. So, you know, it's that everyone says that if you've got too many things on, you know, you can't really do anything great. And, you know, you want to be able to do both jobs, especially in medicine, but any job and also refereeing, you want to be excellent at it. And it was quite hard when you when you can't prepare that well and you're being pulled from both sides. So I was lucky though, at around that time, um, that's when they offered me a full-time contract and um, I had a mentor called Jonathan White, who was also a doctor that um, did some refereeing. And he, he refereed up Super Rugby as well. But when he sort of got to his crossroads, he decided to um, actually go down the medicine path and, and specialise early. Where, and, I, and I saw that and he was he was excellent. Like he would have been you know, one of our best referees in New Zealand and, and was was really, really, um, was a really good referee. Um, but And I think he helped me because I saw what he did. And, and while he was amazing at that, I thought, well, I might try the other path. And when they offered me a full-time contract, I said, great, look, I'm going to take it. Um, it was only for a year. Um, I had a really nervous um, chat with my head of department in the hospital, but they were super supportive. And they said, look, medicine's always going to wait for you. 
um, you know, give it a go and you always have a job when you come back. Um, so that's probably about nine years ago now. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to last this long, but um, it's been, been been great. So that's sort of how I balanced it out. Um, and, you know, being able to do it full-time now, I've sort of reversed back where um, instead of being full-time in the hospital and, and just refereeing the weekend, I'm, I'm, I've been full-time for a number of years, years now, but still working uh, maybe one and a half days a week in the hospital, which for the same reason I said before, you know, getting that, you know, step away from, uh, the world of rugby, the media, the attention, the good games, the bad games, and we actually focus on something else I think is really, really good. And I think um, anyone that's involved in sport um, should have something like that to be able to um, you know, get them out of that that bubble that they can find themselves in. Yeah, I'm not, I imagine it's pretty funny when someone goes to see their doctor and they realise it's Ben O'Keefe. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do eye medicine. I'm, I do ophthalmology. So a lot of it's around um, eyesight and vision. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people... Um, they do come in. They uh, often, you know, refs, refs were always called names like we're blind and all that kind of stuff. So I can always get back to them um, with that answer. But um, yeah, a lot of my patients, when they start sort of recognizing me, you know, a lot of them are, are elderly. And I love, that's what I love about ophthalmology is because you get to actually really chat to your patients um, when they start giving me um, stick about some of my calls. Um, there's two things, you know, they're probably right sometimes. But the second thing is that I know their vision's getting better. So um, there's, you know, it's, there's some benefits there for them. Cool. Um, I want to ask, like, after you make a wrong decision, and especially at like, um, the top of rugby, everyone sees it. So, how do you deal with making a mistake? Because I feel like when a player makes a mistake, um, it's almost ex- like accepted. Whereas when refs are making mistakes, everyone just expects referees to get it right 100 percent of the time, which is impossible. So, how do you yeah, deal with when you make a mistake? Okay, it definitely is impossible to get the game. Um, 100% correct because the game is very subjective. You know, we, as referees, we try and get more aligned so that um, that subjectivity between referees is still consistent because um, we're trying to referee a game that, you know, it's finding that balance between getting a game to flow but also creating boundaries that players, you know, can actually play the game within, you know. So, um, you know, that's hard. It's hard sometimes. So what we what we try and do, and I, I think what I've done is, you know, so there's, there's two times that you, you realise that you've made a mistake. Um the, the first time is is normally after the game. Like often you, you referee a game and, you know, we do a full review and it probably takes about, you know, five to six hours to actually go through the game in detail, looking at every set piece, looking at every decision. Um, was I correct? Was I wrong? Um, what can I improve at? What do I need to get better at? Uh, you know, what were the clear errors? Um, so often you pick up, you know, you do pick up a lot of, I guess, non-decisions. So, so decisions that probably you should have made that you didn't. Side entry at the tackle, um, you know, players that are off feet that affected the delivery to the halfback. Um, but you also, you know, decisions that you do make, which were errors, you also, um, you know, reviewing the game. And so I reckon most referees run at about, you know, 90% in terms of the accuracy. And I think that's really good. But, you know, that still means that if you get, you know, 20 decisions in the game, which is which is sort of average in Super Rugby right now, there's still two decisions that are wrong. Now, it all depends, obviously, what, what type of decision was that? Was it a, a, an offside when the player wasn't offside in the first five minutes? Or was it a, a you know a, a penalty that you gave with five minutes to go that led to an attacking line out where they scored off you know so there's different outcomes and different I guess seriousness of errors that you can make so I guess that's the fir- that's you know the first one so often you don't really realise until after the game um, and then you've just got to work out you know two ways you got to obviously communicate that back to the team because you want to you want to give them clarity around what, what what was wrong so things that they don't need to change because they're actually correct correct that's all they want is a bit of clarity around the decision making. Because um, they they need a train to be better for the next weekend, so I think it's important referees we provide that, which we do. 
Um, and then also as a referee, you know, I need to actually review myself. Okay, why did I make that error and how do I get better for next time? So, for example, that error might be because I was unsighted. So positionally, um, when I exited from, you know, the, the, the ball that came off the top of the line out to the first hit up, why were players in the way? You know, and you know, for example, it might be well, I didn't cut up the field hard enough to get into space to then come into the ruck. So then I'd go out on a Wednesday or, or whenever and actually work on those running lines. So there's there's constant learning cycles that we're having to go to go through to actually try and improve. So, you know, I accept that I'm always going to make errors. I don't want to make the same error, error twice though, and that's why you know that's the benefit of the review. The review is gold because. You got to learn from it. You got to watch some really uncomfortable things sometimes to actually go. Okay, I need to be better there, um, and then you can be better for the next game. And that's, I think, how people improve. That's how you got guys like um, Wayne Barnes, Jaco Piper, who you know they're at the top of their game because they're constantly challenging themselves to improve. I think you know, referees that aren't doing that, um, you know, you can constantly make mistakes. Then your accuracy becomes down, and then you know you can't referee those top games. So that's probably the first one. The second one is is like when you know you've made an error in the game, and and you might. You might know that either either because you know in that instant that you reacted to something that didn't happen um, or, uh, you know, you see a replay on the big screen and you actually can't do anything about it because it's out of protocol, so you can't change your decision. The important things around around those, uh, and, and I've done that. I've done that before. There's, you know, I can think of countless times where I've made an error in a game that I've realised because um, I've seen on the big screen, like, you know, Marika Karabedi, I red-carded uh, last year. And that was one in the review that we realised that actually there was enough, there was shoulder to shoulder contact first before head, um, so it shouldn't have been a red card. And so you know it was a big review in, in terms of okay, I need to be better at that in terms of my foul play process around going through the facts around where is the contact, where's the first contact? Okay, it's not just good enough that there is head contact in that process. There's actually got to be first direct head contact. Um, you know, so that's and 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 the great thing is I had a, a similar tackle that happened. Um, I think it was uh, two weeks ago, which I yellow carded because it was that first shoulder to shoulder, then head contact. Um, so that is a great example of actually where the learning, you know, comes in a roundabout way. Where if I'd given a red card again for that decision, um, I would have been really annoyed with myself because I hadn't learned on that big error that I made the year before. So I guess that's an example of it in action. But you know, when you do make those errors in a game, it's really important that you don't let that error snowball into a ne- the next error, and then another error, and then another error because you're thinking about it. Now I I have this bit of like a, a mantra to to switch on. Um, some people use uh, verbal cues. Some people use physical views like uh, cues like they you know um, slap their thigh or they you know they clip their fingers. Um, I just have this mental cue around just trust and enjoy. Um, and it's about you know whenever I've I've thought I might have made an error in a game, um, if I keep thinking about that, it definitely will affect the the decision making that I. I I, I continue for the rest of the game. So if that happens in the first minute, I've got to get through 79 minutes of thinking whether I was right or wrong in that first minute. So that can definitely lead to errors. Now, nine times out of 10, when I've reviewed that potential error in the first minute, I've actually been been right. So, you know, you can have doubt about yourself in a game, but what I've realized is that genuinely my instincts are correct. So if I let myself um, doubt in that first minute and then it made an error later in the game, well, you know, it's really, really negatively affected the decision making and, and how I can referee. So I just tell myself, just trust and enjoy. Just trust that you know, nine time, you know, ninety five percent of the time you're correct. Move on to the next decision because you don't want that to be wrong. Um, and I think that's the best. That's the best way to be able to do it. And it, it takes some time because it's really hard to compartmentalize a potential error in the game. And even if I know it is an error, you've just got to go. Okay, cool. That's been made. I need to move on to the next one. 
because I want there to be only one error in this game. I've made an error. Okay, I want that to be the only one, and I'm going to spend the rest of the game uh, refereeing really, really accurately. Um, whereas if I let one error go, and that leads into another one and another one, then, yeah, you can have a really poor game. Um, and that's when, you know, you get the headlines about, about yeah, afterwards. That's really cool. That sounds just like um, a top player would sort of view a mistake in a game and stopping it becoming compounding errors. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, obviously it, it's slightly different because we're making, um, you know, mental decisions. We're making decisions based on things that we're looking in front of them. But so are players, you know, they're, they're deciding on, you know, where to catch and pass, where to kick in the space, their running lines and all that. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot for us to be able to learn as referees, you know, talking to coaches, talking to players on how they review systems. Because I think their process around review um, has been is, is really good. And I've got to experience some of that with one of the Super Rugby teams this year. Um, you know, they go into the detail around, okay, what, what do we get wrong in this game, which is different to the plan that we tried to go into the game with. You know, so they're trying to connect the dots between their plan and their um, their post-game review, and that's what we have as well as referees. You know, we have a plan um, specifically for the game that's going to be in, in, uh, in front of us. So last weekend, I refereed um, Crusaders versus Roratars. My plan was I wanted to create space. I wanted to set up set piece really well, so line out and scrum. Um, they were they were the two big things. So if I could get you know space and the setup correct for line out and scrum, I knew that you know, that would be a really good game that I could let the players sort of play. And you know that's what we had. Um, so, you know, when I reviewed my game last night, um, while I went through the whole game, I specifically reviewed those two key pieces as well around, okay, what could I have done better? And did, was I true to my pre-match plan? I think that's exactly what teams do as well. I know I've seen that. Um, so, you know, you constantly see players and teams getting better. And I think um, we've, we've just caught up with that. Um, I know uh, referees definitely in the Southern Hemisphere and, and at World Rugby. Yeah. I want to sort of chat about where you think um, rugby's headed as a game and uh, maybe like any new laws which you think should be added and any you think should be taken away? Yeah, look, I think um, I love rugby. I think it's one of the best games in the world. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a global sport, which I think it's amazing how it's not even bigger than it is, you know. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to experience the World Cup in Japan last year. I've been lucky enough to experience some massive games. And when you've got 60, 70, 80,000 people in the stadium, you've got millions of people watching around the world, you realise how incredible you know the game is. So, um, I think I think where it's heading, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of change in the rules right now or interpretation, especially around foul play. So, if you look at Super Rugby right now, um, we averaged I think about 30 games per red card a few years ago. Now we're down to three games per red card because you know, like rugby in the Northern Hemisphere as well, there's a big focus on um, foul play and contact to the head. Um, and that, I guess that was always um, a difference in style where. You know, in Super Rugby in New Zealand, you know, it was fast, um, it was high octane, um, lots of tries were scored versus the Northern Hemisphere, where it was slightly different. But you're getting a blend of styles now. We're actually in the Northern Hemisphere, they're scoring a lot of tries, they're, they're fast, there's a lot of quick ball. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the same as well, but there's also a lot of tries being scored from all. So, you know, I think the global game is actually becoming more intertwined, which is great. So there's not that clear difference in styles. Um, you know, we saw that last year when we had, um, you know, the Southern teams beating the Northern teams and even the Northern teams beating the Southern teams with their own style. I think that was really, really fantastic. Um, so that, but the, the, the focus on foul play, I think, is changing and it's good. Um, you know, there's definite um, issues with players with concussion um, and, you know, their, their health uh, post-game, especially when they retire. Like I talked to a player who um, got knocked out from a recard on the weekend 
in the car park after the game and like he couldn't even remember it. He asked me if I recarded the guy or not because he couldn't even remember that. Um, so there's definitely a push for, um, for us to be stricter on that and also for the technique of the player to change. And I think that's good. So I think that's moving in the right, right direction. And what that will mean is that you know players, because they have to tackle low, um, the ball carrier is probably going to be able to um, reach the gain line. There's probably going to be an offload potential. So the game's going to be faster. So the game's going to be faster. And I think you know that's what we want to see. We want to see the game being faster. And I think with referees, you know, what we can do to actually complement that as well um, is have less stoppages at scrum. You know, we just need to make decisions. We can have less stoppages um, to ask for the TMO, just make live decisions. And, and you know, the TMO is always working in the background as a safety net. So if we wanted to try and, you know, the, the person put his foot out on touch uh, within two phases, then unless we, if we didn't clearly see it, then let's just award the try. And then I don't know if everyone realizes, but before every conversion goes over, the TMO actually clears the try anyway. So it's a bit like the bunker in the NRL, um, uh, which is rugby league down here, is that if, a t- if, the, if the try is awarded and the conversion goes over, it's because the referee, the team, and the ARs are happy, even though um, they might, and they would have che- they're checking things in the background. So the 30 or 40 seconds that it takes for the ball to get put on the tee, um, the TMO has already gone through all the replays and actually said, look, okay, no, if it wasn't in touch or there wasn't a knock on, um, there wasn't an offside, so so we can play on. So I think, you know, with, with all those small tweaks, we're going to get a really faster game. We're going to get a really entertaining game. Um, I know there was talk about potentially removing the jackler um, out, of the, out of the equation <clears throat> to make the game faster and actually to, um, you know, make it really hard to actually defend. Um, and I think that might be a bit going a bit too far because I really like um, a really good jackler. I really like a good contest. So if someone can actually get on the ball quick enough and lift the ball um you know that that puts the attack under pressure you know the, the attack have to actually be able to send a cleaner and quick um to be able to protect that ball carrier going into contact and if they don't then i think it's that's great that um you know the defense can have that opportunity to get the ball um turned over because otherwise you know we get 30 40 50 phases of just um attacking rugby and i think oh well, that's great i think that you know that almost turns into league um real I think you know having contests at the breakdown is awesome. I think it brings the referee into it a bit more, um, which some people don't always always like. But um, definitely the contest is good. So that that's, that that was sort of something I guess where potentially people were thinking that you know the change was going to happen there. Um, I think another one is around the red card. That's been I sort of mentioned that before. But that's been debated at World Rugby at the moment around whether we should be continuing, whether they should introduce what we've been doing in the Southern Hemisphere. So the twenty minute red card. Um, that player then leaves the field and then the team can bring on um, someone else. Personally, I'm, I'm in favour for it. Like, I've really, I've really enjoyed um, being able to use that down here in the Southern Hemisphere because I guess the, the biggest argument around a 20-minute red card is that, you know, people think that a player is going to go out and deliberately try and hurt someone to get red carded to actually then benefit their team because they're going to go 15 on 15 again. And I don't, know, I don't. Maybe I'm just a little bit gullible, but um, or too trusting. But I, I just don't believe at the professional level, um, players try to do that. I think individual players, you know, they that's their careers. You know, it's what puts food on their table. So you know, they don't want to be um, obviously a liability for their team because they're not going to get contracts in the future if they're the, like in 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 ice hockey. You know, if they're one of the Bash um, brothers, you know, they're not going to get actually um, you know re-signed again. So therefore, they're going to lose contracts. Um, also, they're going to spend, you know, five, six weeks out because of, um, you know, repeated, um, you know, red cards. So, um, th- so that's why I'm in, I'm in a favour for it because you then get 15 on 15 
you know, I think a team that is red carded, you know, it's, it's really hard to play against 14 people for 10 minutes, let alone 20. So I think the actual, um, the offence is is still great enough. And I think, you know, the being down to 14 men um, still has an effect on a team. So um, that, that's sort of where I think it, but I know that we're rugby sort of discussing it. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of traditional merits for the actual, you know, if you get red carded, then, you know, you actually, you must leave the field. Um, I just know that when originally red cards were brought in, they were for, you know, people that got that punched, that you eye gouged, that kicked, you know, that stomped, you know, players that you must leave the field because we can't have that in the game of rugby. Um, we are now, you know, because we're seeing a lot of red cards with the new head contact process, which I think is excellent. You know, we're getting guys that are millimetres away from being correct tackles to being red cards. You know, so is that the same as someone eye gouging? Is that the same as someone getting kicked in the face? Um, I don't think it is. You know, I think it's a technique issue rather than a deliberate action. So, um, you know, that's, I reckon, I've probably summed up a debate around the 20-minute red card right now, but um, it's uh, it'll, it'll be something that I, I know uh, World Rugby looking into, and I'm grateful they are because, you know, we've got a World Cup next year, um, and if they were going to make changes, I think we've got enough time to be able to do it now versus, you know, leaving it to a few weeks before the World Cup next year, and we're actually having to um, learn and get used to it um, in the new World Cup because, when, when new laws come in, you know, as referees, it does take us a bit of teething, a bit of time to actually get used to it, actually to see enough pictures to work out, okay, what is correct, what isn't correct. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that I think, you know, we've actually got a bit, a bit of time to be able to change. Um, but one, I think the one law that I would change if I could um, is the deliberate knock-on uh, law. Um, I, I really like, you know, as I said, I, I love rugby, rugby union, um, but I think rugby league has it um, pretty good down here where, you know, if if a, if a player comes through and deliberately knocks the ball as a defender, um, it's put down to a bad pass from the attack. You know, they haven't passed with depth, uh, the too shallow, and the defender's actually got in there. You know, they've taken the chance to come out of the line and you've you've actually um, done a poor pass. I quite like that because I think probably the most contentious um, decisions that we make as referees that people disagree with us on is the deliberate knock-on law because we can go from, you know, a knock-on to all the way to a penalty try um, just based on where they are on the field and based on the actions of the defender. So I think a lot of people don't really, you know, when they watch that, when you know Joe Public's watching it from the stand, um, they don't really get why we have to penalise that, why we have to yellow card that, because they see there's just good play from the defence. So that's potentially one thing for me, I reckon, we could change in the future. Um, but other than that, I, I quite like how we've sort of kept the rules pretty consistent over the last two years, um, albeit with a few tweaks, because... It's meant that um, you know we can get really good at refereeing it. I think teams can get really good at trusting us, um, and it means that we get a really a really good product and a really good game. Which you know we're seeing some some awesome games across the north and the southern hemisphere, and um, all the domestic competitions and even the, the international stuff that we've had. So um, it's been it's looking good. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, like if you compare rugby, especially in the northern hemisphere, from ten years ago, it's a completely different game and it's so much better to watch now. Yeah, it's it's exciting, and you know it's it's so it's such a privilege to be able to come up and you know referee some Six Nations games where you know all the games you know they're pretty close. Um, they go down to the last five minutes. Um, there's good attack. There's good defense. Um, yeah, it's just it's really exciting. Yeah, there's a lot of chat about scrums at the moment. Um, whether there's too many scrums, uh, how long they take. What's your sort of opinion on that? Sorry. I love a scrum. I know I know many a scrum coach um, that love a scrum as well. Um, look, I, th- I think a scrum is, is, is obviously uh, technically it's a restart and play, but it's still a contestable restart and play. Um, I think, yes, 
I think there are definitely a lot of scrums in the game of rugby. There's probably about eight to 12 in a game. Um, so, you know, there's, there's more lineouts in a game of rugby than there is scrums, actually. Um, what I think where people get frustrated is probably more on us as referees, where we just continually reset um, the, the scrums that, you know, are in front of us. I think we're, what, where we can get better at um, as referees is actually just making decisions early. You know, putting the onus on players around the pictures that we're seeing. So just be really clear to them that, look, I'm seeing the tight head roll, the, roll your shoulder. I need you to get your shoulder out. Or Lucy, I'm seeing you clearly hinge at your hips. I need you to get your hips up, feet up. Otherwise, the next one will be a penalty. And then just go from there. Um, I think um, I've always said if you reset, if you, if you if a scrum collapses and you choose to reset, well, you're going to get another scrum 100% of the time. But if a, a scrum collapses and you see a clear picture and you go bang, penalty, a free kick, well, you might not have another scrum for the whole game, um, you know, because it could just be an open, open style game, and they and you, you know, advantage over, and, and they just keep playing. So, um, for me, I think uh, look, there are there are definitely a lot of scrums. I actually like a scrum. I think it's good. I think it's a good contest. I think um, you know, it's a really um, specialized piece of play for props and front rows and locks. You know, like teams have to actually work together. Um, I love it when you know you get the chahus and the the. Um, the high fives when a front row is, you know, they've really been dominant and they've beaten another front row. Um, you know, that's that's powerful. Um, so I think, you know, we, we've tweaked in terms of getting the safety right with break foot. So I think that was really important, especially for hookers and their, their necks and spines. Um, I think it's a great restart and play. I think it's really good. So we, 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 I think referees have a lot to say in trying to make it a little bit more palatable for the public by just uh, making some decisions and, and stopping the resets. Cool. I'm glad I asked. I want to spend the last just few minutes on... Um going into sort of as much detail as possible about jackling. Um, so what makes a really good jackler in your eyes? Look, a really good jackler, and I, I can think of a few um, that I've refereed in my time, Richard McCaw, Michael Hooper, um, David Pocock. You know, they're, they're just guys that, um, you know, in Super Rugby that we did. But those guys, you know, so in terms of technique, they got low to the ground. They were able to really su- strongly support their body weight, even if they were getting hit from the side. Um, they're able to lift the ball, okay, and they're able to show the referee that they were on the ball and they were lifting. So they, they're able to get into a really low, strong position where they're showing the referee positive pictures. Now, the best thing that those those players did, though, is that they were able to anticipate when the right time was to actually go for the ball. So they weren't trying to put their head in the ruck every single tackle because um, I think that would just be a waste. What they did, though, what they did was is that they were able to read really clearly, okay, when is the opportune moment where a ball carrier is isolated? Um, often it happens when they are getting tackled backwards. Often it happens on the uh, between the 215s, so out on the wing. You, that's when you'd see the turnovers. Um, and it's not really just flankers anymore, but I, I think you know a lot of players in the team and teams have actually become really good at doing that, hookers as well. Um, you can even see some locks, you know, get, it, get low to the ground to be able to go for the ball. So, the, but, the, but the very best ones actually learn, they learn or they, they know when to actually go for the ball. Um, so their timing's perfect. They see when the player's isolated and then they can just get strength over the ball. And as we've seen, you know, if someone's low to the ground but supporting their body weight, it's really hard to clean them out without going around their neck or without coming in the side. Um, and that's why I think, and that's the beautiful part of rugby is that we can get a really good contest. We get really good turnovers. Um, if they win the turnover, then it's a quick counterattack. If they don't, because the player's held on, um, then we get a penalty. Yeah, you hear a lot now. Um, refs will say no lift if the player is over the ball. Um, do you notice mm. like those great jacklers are really good at being able to lift the ball rather than just sitting on it? 
Yeah, and and that's that's something that the professional players are really good at is they're really good at adapting to the new laws every year. Okay, so we brought in two years ago that player. Yes, they get over the ball, but they've got to lift it because what we're seeing is that players are actually just going over and pancaking on the ball. So you know they're supporting their body weight, but they're actually just you know wrapping their their arms around the body of the player, so getting ball and body and just waiting to be. It was called surviving the cleanout. So they're just sort of like bracing and they're just getting hit from all angles. And then if they were able to survive the clean out, then they're actually able to win the ball. But now we're actually saying, look, if you want to win the ball, you've actually got to get in that right position and actually show us that you're lifting the ball. So we want to see a tug. Now, the benefit of that, it means is that you're, it allows them to get a quick turnover. So if the tug happens on the ball and they don't, and they lift it and they don't win the ball because um, the other players, the, the, the tackle players held on, then we should go bang, quick penalty. So that's the benefit for that. But it also just means that for us, because those players have been able to adapt, it's it's brought the height of the jackler up just slightly, okay? Because they can't actually just lock down on the player on the ball anymore. So they've actually got to be a little bit upright because they need to lift. And it means that the, the, the players cleaning out actually do have a fair chance of cleaning that player out. So um, the importance of timing is, is, even, is, is just showed to be even more important um, for those players because they've actually got a time time to be on the ball to lift um, when that player is isolated so they don't get cleaned out because you know they're in a position where you know if the, the cleaner's low they'll be able to get under them and move them off the ball cool um one last quick question is there anything this might be hard to answer that um especially jacklers do which you notice influences you or other refs um look not not really um you know, because if, if they, it's all about pictures. So if we see a shape from them with their feet up, that's perfect. Well, what they can do, though, to influence us is that, you know, maybe they're not getting the rub of the green. Maybe we're calling them off the ball. What they can do at the next stoppage is just come and talk to the referee and say, um, so, look, ref, like, I feel like I'm getting a good lift on the ball. What do I need to do? Do I just need to get my feet more under me? And, you know, the referee will say what, what you know, the referee needs to see. But what that, what that player is doing is actually planting a seed of, look, I think I'm pretty good. I'm actually going to keep going for the ball in this game. Can you let me know um, what I need to, to be better at? And the referee almost gives their sort of seal of approval around, look, just do this and then I'll reward you. That's what they're basically saying, you know, um, without saying it out loud. Um, and that's the nuances of, I think, um, you know, players and coaches, sorry, players and referees, captains and referees. We're just human beings. So if you talk to us on that kind of level um, and you plant those seeds, I reckon it definitely does influence how the referee, you know, referees the rest of the game. Um, the referee is never going to change the decision that they make right then and there. Um, but, you know, they might, at the next time that player's on the ball, you know, they might just win the ball. You know, they might actually get that penalty because, you know, they'll see the player with their feet under them and lifting the ball. And then, okay, that looks good. I just told them that's all I need from them. And bang, they get the penalty. So um, it's more that sort of verbal and um, referee management side that I reckon, you know, Jacklers can, can probably work on and they might help them during the game. Okay, cool. Um, look, mate, thank you so much again for coming on. That was incredibly interesting, incredibly helpful. Hey, pleasure. Um, anytime. No, it's always good to talk code, and um, yeah, pleasure to be part of part of your show.